10 years, three boys, one question, are we friends? Wow, why, hello there, and welcome to the podcast. The name and cloud which lowers upon every day of our lives is a question, and that question is, are we friends? I will be your co-host, Taylor. I'm your co-co-host, Brian. I'm just Jorge. Sorry, what What was that? What is the cloud doing? Yeah, the what? cloud is lowering. It, what yeah, is like, that? What is that? It just lowering? means it like it, it lower. It, uh, it just no, means you like can't. You know, I'm asking ominously. for the, I don't use yeah, the, def- oh, the word in the definition. <laughs> it's just there ominously. It's it, like when you lower over someone, it, like you're about I've to I've never pounce. lowered over someone. Yeah, I've never lowered. Do you lower over have, people I might often? have loomed. I might no, have but loomed, yeah, I've loomed over, over people. Literally, Shakespeare uses the word. I'm Lower. sure he does. Oh, good. good. Uh, yes, that, a guy that from can... 400 it's in the plus opening... years ago or whatever. Oh, because we don't use any of those words anymore. Sure. That's we just true. use Come on, you know what invented. he meant. Don't fucking do that. Well, yeah. <laughs> we picked some of them and we left others by the wayside. Like... I thought that sounded pretty in tune with what we are talking no, about. No, it totally does. I was legitimately <laughs> asking. What the... <laughs> I was not trying to so razz you. So you were just <laughs> literally asking for the definition, and then Brian hopped on the razz train, like, nah, I'm yes. going straight to Bash Alley now. Yeah. And then, I, well, I'm not going to stop the razzing if it started. Exactly. But no, normally I am just asking you for the definitions of the word. Yeah. Why don't I learn something while I'm here? <laughs> Might as well get something out of this. So speaking of getting something out of this, Brian, today is your topic. What are we talking about? We are talking about one of my favorite topics. A certain subsection of film. The dark alley of filmmaking, if you will. The the lowering cloud, as some pretentious people might say. Film noir. So you you honestly, our intro fits with this. Yeah, topic. I was gonna say it's pretty good. Um, you open that beer like it, like it fit into the noir theme, but I feel like they're not just sitting there cracking open brewskis with the boys. Like, uh, no, normally you would find, uh, you would find film noir characters. Most likely, definitely drinking alcohol, but usually like the hard stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's something sent over to them from a, you know, usual bartender or just from their own private stash in the I, office. I'm a fan of the private eye stashed bottle of booze <laughs> for clients. <laughs> the one that's always in the desk drawer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we continue, Brian, for those of us who maybe aren't aware, can you give us like uh, the quick and dirty definition of film noir? Because I feel like we all have a hint of what it is, but like. Maybe solidify it I was going to say, us. I wanted to, in terms of structure in this episode, it's not really structure, it's sort of loose form, but I wanted to go over um, kind of film noir as a concept, do a brief jaunt through its history, um, hitting just the highlights and things that are important, and Sweet. then uh, talk about what you guys did and saw and thoughts on it and everything. We'll pepper through comments and stuff on the way. Um, film noir is... Technically, a genre of film like horror or Western or sci-fi or fantasy or something like that or a drama or whatever. But it is like the weird cousin that doesn't actually fit in any categories, but because of that is their own category. Um, 
it is usually associated with like crime or mystery. However, crime and mystery are their own genres and film noir is a also a different thing from that. It is not like Yeah, but it it yeah. has a very specific style and like reoccurring elements yeah. in the story. I, I, I like didn't it, think it was like a, what like you've a miscellaneous just said, category. It, no, no, what you've just said is the definition of it. Yeah. Most genres are defined by like what is actually by happening content in it. The content versus style. Film noir is judged almost purely on style. That's why we have noir westerns and noir sci-fi and noir comedies. We have you know, yeah. parodies of the noir that like film noir is basically how a film looks and how a film feels more well, than I, anything. I'd make an argument that like. There are other genres that deal with that as well. I mean, like, the same content can be done in a horror context or a comedy or a thriller or drama oh, or whatever. Oh, there's... No, no I'm, not, I'm not saying that nothing else can cross over. You can have a horror comedy, but you have the tropes of horror and different horror movies can look starkly different and still be in the same category, whereas a lot of noir films... It's a lot. It's a tighter, you know, definition of how they look. Yeah. Well, I'd say it's yeah, like a much, feel, it's like a much like tighter the, uh, specific category. Yeah. The aesthetic, the aesthetic of noir is one of its defining features, whereas the aesthetic of horror or the aesthetic of comedy horror. is not like it's not what defines it. Yes. Uh, I mean, literally, film noir yeah. means black, dark film. So it's right. That's a little obvious part of it. Um, yeah. Let me, let's hear about that that history. Hmm. What do you got going on there? So we'll start, film noir starts before film noir is film noir. Shocking nobody. Um, Can I take a stab at it? Is it, is it M? That Ooh, is, I love M. M is great, and that is essentially where it starts. Yes. Because it has its roots in what is called German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. So in post-World War I, when everyone in Germany is a little blue, uh, in the 20s... Sure. They, well, I'm just yeah, gonna, you yeah, know, no, no, yeah, yeah, you know, just gonna Let's leave call every. It blue. I'm gonna be really generous and kind with how I describe a lot of things right here. Um, in the 20s, a lot of the film industry starts growing in every country imaginable, including yeah, Germany. Uh, am, am I wrong that Germany was? I know for the longest time, Germany was the biggest foreign buyer of American films, like into World War II, mm-hmm. like well into World War II. Yes, uh, they are a big. They're honestly a major player in filmmaking and in Mm -hmm. film. Like, they love film. They really do enjoy film. Um, And German Expressionism really is like nothing else that's being made. Everything else that's being made is looks very almost documentary-ish. It's very, like, simple and well put, you know, well put together for the time, but otherwise kind of simple and flat and, like, nothing really going on. Yeah, it's not stretching too yeah. far away from like we want to put a play on movies and we'll play with angles so you're focusing on different people in the play but like the, right. the yeah. aesthetics of film had not really been pushed uh, uh, especially at that point. I'm especially going to say American film is that way American because film. American film yeah uh, French film is also I mean trip to the moon things like that are very right. like is that a uh, le voyage de la lune yeah the exactly. 1902 the, yeah. The, with the little rocket exactly um with the cannon, they don't even. They don't even. They yeah, have no, a they little shoot shell. them right they up through the eye of the moon. Into the eyeball of the moon. Absolutely, Dude, I would have um, definitely been so a German scientist. Is in, in definitely more in that vein. It's in what vein? Yes, 
You were. <laughs> well, no, I was, I was thinking. I was just thinking about the scientists in that movie because they have the uh, the wizard hats. So Germans, uh, again, not feeling great, make very interesting, darker, more much more fascinating films. One right. of the biggest, uh, one of the most famous examples is called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Right. It looks like yeah, an absolute in every fever introduction. Dream. Uh, in every introduction to film, they have like a couple of famous stills mm-hmm. from that exact the casket of Dr. Caligari. And yeah. like I, I hear that name all the time. Yes, yeah, well, it's uh, the one of the first horror films. Yes, um, it's. I think it's like widely that and Nosferatu are like the. the uh, Edison did a Frankenstein in like 1910. I want to say, but other than that. Those two are like the openers, and again, both German actually, because Nosferatu was uh, F. W. Murnau because he couldn't get the rights to Dracula, mm-hmm. so he just went as uh, Count Orlock, and yeah. you're like, that's such horseshit, dude, <laughs> dude. He's cooler. He's way cooler though. Oh, he is. Oh, but yeah. it's just like I love the even back then when copyright is all weird. They're just like, ah, we'll just say he's like, it's fine. Who cares? Dude, just um, get rid of his hair. It'll be fine. But uh, into the 30s, they keep adding, and again, sound gets added. Um, so M is a really prolific, kind of a Kickstarter to what noir is. M is about a child murderer who uh, gets ended up getting caught and you know hunted down by the... Yes, he perpetually whistles in the Hall of the Mountain King, and it makes me very scared... And very unhappy with things when I do that. Um, and uh, yeah. one of my favorite parts about that really quick is uh, Peter Lore is the guy who plays the, mm-hmm. the murderer. Um, and I don't know. I didn't know Peter Lore until I realized that I'd known him my entire life yes. through Looney Tunes. Yes. Uh, when, whenever they have mm-hmm. that character, that sort of like that weird guy like that, mm-hmm. that's Peter Lore. With the big he eyes. Just, that's literally yeah, him. That's just what he looked like in real yeah. life. That's kind of, you know, his unfortunate bag of genetics. It's just, Honestly, it's uh, not it that unfortunate because he was a really successful oh, yeah. actor. So, you know. Um, but those movies are kind of the last things to come over to America uh, before something happened in 1930-something to 1945. And their cinematic history is a little different at that point. Oh, um, yeah, there's definitely history there. There's definitely the cinematic Gerbils. history, but they kind of go, hey, I'm not exactly a fan of all this creativity and interesting stuff. We'll go this way, uh, but another time. What if we wanted to send a message you, with Phil? I want a, you yeah, to... Like, I have a particular word that I want you filmmakers to think about. Fascist. Mm. Let's just everything, everything. Just, just the, do that. Let's okay? just brainstorm. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. The the one problem or something I will say is, again, a lot of these filmmakers actually did flee Germany during that time, um, but not all of them. And some of them got into that industry and still made very successful films for the t- like. Yeah. yeah. The the one yeah. like thing you said it's they had some high quality producers in that time. Well, it's um, just triumph of the will. Like, yeah, that's exactly Lenny what Lenny Riefenstahl bring up. for all of the bad stuff and there's a lot of bad stuff. Still knows yeah. how to make let's, she knew, she let's knew how to make do, let's not anyway, redo my intro to film class and let's correct, yeah, also correct, let's stop talking correct. about the Nazis. Ex- well, you know, <laughs> as, as, honestly, as much as we can avoid it. Honestly, depending on so we get into World War II time. Uh, with this because the U.S. is kicking out of the Depression, doing all this stuff, and they are like, we love this German Expressionism stuff. We're going to take some of those things from it. And 
because it really reflects the mood of what's happening at the time. It is a darker time. It is not as escapist in that sense. There is a level of realism they want. And that's during the war is when film noir proper is born. Um, and film noir goes from the 40s to somewhere around the mid 50s or so before mm-hmm. that finally dies. Um, it takes a break during the 50s and 60s. And then during the 70s, which is st- kicking off with one of the movies you watch, Jorge, uh, yep. Chinatown, the idea of neo-noir, the new age of noir, rises up. And it is, it's periodically just shown up based on who wants to make a noir ever since. Like, and so right. something that I didn't know, Brian, and uh, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, that people, oh, it's I will. not that like they <laughs> came out of the gate saying like, ah, this is noir. We're going to start mm. making noir films. Like this is a later yeah. category that like got put onto this like really popular set of aesthetics. Correct. Right? In the early yeah. 50s is when... I believe a French film critic coins film noir um, to describe the movies that had already been happening and ended up only describing a few more films, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. by the fifties you get a lot of like atomic age and the B movie and like sci-fi, those sort of things start coming out and those Uh, take over, those take over that like, I don't want to say counterculture, but that like, like that vibe that film noir was riding on. Yeah. Yeah. Those we start getting like um, invasion of the body snatchers for the first mm-hmm. time. Uh, the day the earth stood still for the first, for the first time. time. Like those, you know, uh, yeah, when we, 50 foot tall. Yeah. When we decided we actually wanted something to happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> Shots fired. Okay. Cause uh, I absolutely yeah. disagree with that. Um, so can we start talking about the movies that we watched? Uh, well, we, yeah, we, um, because I want to go over the, some of the tropes you guys thought or found or assumed were tropes. Um, and I'm going to kind of go right. chronologically, uh, in, just in terms of you two, actually. Because okay. I've seen every both of the movies you guys watched. I've, I have I took a fucking class of this in JMU. Um, I was had a whole class on film noir? Yeah. I came to one or two of your screenings in that class. That's right. You did. Yeah. That was that. fun. Mm-hmm. But Taylor is going to kick us off. Um, why don't you talk about Double Indemnity? Oh, yeah. So this is the movie that made insurance agents sexy for me. Yeah. Um, okay. Because that's what it's about. That's it's gonna, about like tale as old as time. You want to talk about something not happening? Taylor's main character <laughs> is an insurance agent. <laughs> Dude, and let me tell you, he is an insurance Oh, it's a he. Agent. There we go. Yeah, Fred so, McMurray. Uh, is Fred his McMurray name. is the main guy, and Barbara Stanwyck uh, plays Mrs. Um, Dreister. Uh, shit, <laughs> go There's for so it, many dude. Fucking regardless, regardless. Yeah. So, uh, 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 oh, sorry. Walter Neff is the character. I'm going to use the character's yes. name. Oh, please I can't do, please do. Remember, okay. So Walter Neff is an insurance guy, and he's going to the Dietrichsons' house to, you know, just casually say, "Do you want to re up on your automobile insurance?" And Mr. Dietrichson isn't there, but the absolute liquid sex oh. angled of Mrs. <laughs> Diedrichson. Straight up timepiece. I should have watched and your movie. No, and seriously, the, he comes in and he's talking to like the German uh, housemaid. And yeah. And he looks up and there's Mrs. Diedrichson like in a towel scantily, like oh, holding yeah. it together. And just, oh, let me just slip into something more comfortable. And, and, and we're like, what year a towel was it? already. This is 1944. So that was basically yeah. hardcore pornography. 
Oh yeah, no. Yeah. And uh, when she's coming down, uh, it was almost a Quentin Tarantino esque foot fuck of a camera shot, <laughs> uh, where it's, he's thinking to himself, like, you know, I had a thousand things on my mind that day, but they were all blacked out by the sight of that sweet anklet. Also, <laughs> just, like, she has like a, an anklet on with her name on it. As mm-hmm. an aside to what Jorge was just talking about, the I don't know if the MPAA was around at this point, but. The conduct code, the Hollywood code, oh, the wasn't Hayes around. Code? The Hayes code um, was kind of in effect, but not really. And McCarthyism hadn't fucking came in in the 50s yet to shut everything down in terms of like Holly- anti-Hollywood shit. So these times are very like suggestive with their plots, suggestive with their characters, suggestive with what they show and what they imply and what like. Right. They do. They're allowed to push envelopes here. So yeah, and it oh. definitely comes across in this movie because they <laughs> cool. have they have the one conversation which you think is about insurance, but it's actually about sex. Cool they, uh, metaphor. It's clear. It's clear that Mrs. Diedrichson wishes that her unloving husband would just die, and maybe Mr. Neff, the insurance adjuster, knows something about that. And she's aghast when he finally says, is this what you're talking about? And she dismisses him and he goes mm-hmm. back to his dark apartment. It's raining. He's It's raining in LA, first of yeah, all. Yeah, the <laughs> hilarity of that. Yeah. He's looking out the window and it's clear that someone is just like putting their thumb on a hose outside the window of this <laughs> Film set, noir it is, is a mood, okay? It's not meant to be. <laughs> state of mind. Right before you got to the dark out. apartment, by the way, I thought you were talking about a comedy. Oh, because it oh, seems like one where they decide to murder the husband and he keeps like bumbling yeah. his way through. But it's all, in, it's all in the pacing. It's all in the pacing because it'll be like, if only something were to happen to him. Well, what do you mean, baby? I'm sorry. I was thinking about your anklet. Oh, he died. <laughs> I don't, I, think wonder I don't think he if says that's that, what you were thinking. I, I think... wondered if you were wondering. And just like, you know, like, yeah, just have sex. Like, like, get it over yeah. with. And so Mrs. Diedrichson comes over to Mr. Neff's apartment, and then they plot to kill Mr. Diedrichson. And they, they try to do it uh, by and pull off an insurance scam. And they do it, and it sort of falls apart. And then, oh, wait. Hate to break it to you guys, but Mrs. Diedrichson actually is a double-crossing vixen and is trying, you know, and then people are murdered. And it, it was really cool. It was a very exciting movie to watch. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your question, Brian? Um, so I was um oh my thing was so actually this is a good example of what sort of I know you only watched one movie but you guys do have vague you know knowledge of this sort of thing out of that one Taylor what sort of big tropes of film noir like which which aspects of either the plot or the characters lost... or something showed up that you're like these have to be in more oh yeah um. So every time someone walks in, they ask for a drink mm. anywhere, and it does—it doesn't even have to be booze. Like that they're might in have an just office been the forties, dude. I that that might have just, just been the forties. Like that was just okay. the time. Um, I stopped counting after like sixteen times. Someone lit a cigarette. <laughs> Yeah. Also just, that's yep. just the times definitely also, oh, also the times. Um, thousand percent like, the times but yes continue there's something about the the way the dialogue is constructed with the back and forth mm-hmm. like well i wonder what you mean well i wonder if you wonder or if you're actually wondering mrs diedrichson <gasps> and then you know yeah they're like these these are the ways that the, the coy love <laughs> is happening right now it's very sexy um like there's always a Kinda promiscuity of something no. happening barbara stanwick um, is like Oh, she is. She gorgeous. It's a hor- it's a kind of a gross term, but I I have to. She oozes sex. You're oh, like my every God. time she's on screen, she's in a supermarket at one point, not talking to, like talking over the um, the top of the aisle. The uh, the aisle. 
where Fre- yeah. uh, Walter Neff is on one side of it and Barbara Stanwyck, Fred McMurray is on one side of it, Barbara Stanwyck's on the other side. And she's just like looking forward talking with her sunglasses and stuff on. And every time she says a word and they cut to her, I'm just like, hi. Like I just <laughs> melt a little bit every time. It's really they- bad. And she is like she has like femme fatale written. Well, it, that's yeah, that what I was going to say. Liquid sex turns yeah into femme fatale like so quickly, the, um, and that really yeah. like at the halfway point, um, just like the feeling of anxiety. There's always like a dark feeling that's yeah. you know like the, right. the one other character um, who is not Ray McMurray but is played by Edward Edward Robinson, uh, the the keys, the other insurance yes. adjuster. He's the investigator, and he keeps talking about this little man in his chest whenever something's going wrong. He just feels it. Mm-hmm. He was almost married once to a dame, but then he just had that little man in his chest and he had an investigator and she'd been dyeing her hair and drinking from the bottle and she had a previous <laughs> husband. Yeah. And so I cut it off with hair. the dame. Yeah, I know. That was that's what he started the list from and like the end of the list was that her father's in prison. Like I don't think those belong oh, no. in the same list. Dude, honestly, dyeing so your quickly. hair and drinking from the bottle is like my dream but dame. I think um I think double indemnity shows Two of the big tropes for me is cynical nature and the femme fatale. Like big time, big time. The the whole mm, there's a third one. Um, the entire thing is narrated by yes. Fred McMurray, uh, and so it starts uh, at the end of the plot. Right, he's speaking into a dictaphone the whole time, which is their excuse for him. Like, and there I was sitting like it was any other day. Yeah, but little did I know it was not like any other day. And, you know, whatever the fucking film noir lines are. Those were pretty film noir to be honest. Um, they ended up working out. But, um, yeah, he... That also kind of ties into, like, film noir isn't a fun thing. Like, it is not an action adventure. It is not, like, a romance. Like, romance isn't involved. It's not a love story between the two. No, it it's is, sex. It's not love. It's sex. And it's very... It's definitely in, like, if you're going old school uh, descriptions, it's always in the tragedy category. Even yeah. oh, if, big time. Even if, like, a main character makes it, they're, it's, you know, they're changed forever and it's not, like, good. They Somebody might come out of it, like, happy, but otherwise it's not, like, it doesn't end well. Um, so that's one big thing. And the other big thing is... Having a lady who is so She's no good, son. She's no, no good. good. She absolute like grandparents will drive that... you crazy, Muggsy. You, <laughs> they'll take you all the way to the end of the line. You know where the end of the line is? The is, cemetery. Is that the idea? Is that the women are supposed to be bad for them? Uh, yes. They're, well, no. The women are dangerous. They that the women are dangerous. I, I um, never see. I was never. I'm always like yes. Perfect woman, like, let's do this. It's party time. <laughs> Are she you... has a line. Uh, so uh, it's party Barbara time. Stanwyck playing, yeah, playing Phyllis Diedrichson, though the wife has this one line where she has already shot fucking Fred McMurray's character, Mr. Neff. Uh, and then she, like, and he says, ah, you're going to have to do better than that, baby. <laughs> Perhaps I can walk a little closer to you. And by the way, he's just holding his chest. There's yeah. no bullet hole. Like, there's no effect that he's attempted. He's just... <laughs> Well, these were made for $8. He, like, I don't know what to tell swaps, you. 
he like slumps into her arms and she can't do it. And like, I, I swear, I've never loved anyone. I didn't love you until right then when I couldn't pull the trigger. And he says, here, let me help you with it. And then he shoots her twice in the stomach. <laughs> Damn. Damn. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, it was so good. He's oh, God, it was so those good. sweet lines are... They can really like, make it. Jorge, this movie is so chock full of these lines that are pulled. Yeah. Like I can see why this is such an easy genre to parody because these lines are gorgeous. Yeah. Double <laughs> yeah. Indemnity is also like one of three that gets like talked about immediately when you say a film noir. Really? Like that, the Maltese Falcon. Um, That's what I was the thinking The Big more. Sleep. Like those are, yeah. Hmm. What, those you're thinking more in terms of what? Like film just noir, a film noir. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, those are... And, you know, Chinatown. Yes. Do you want to so do you want to yeah. go over Chinatown a little bit? Because that is the movie you, and, you ended up watching. Yeah. Yeah, that is what I watched. I've been meaning to watch it for a very long time. Uh-huh. Um, I had read part of the script for a film class. Really? Interestingly enough. Yes. I did not remember what the ending was, except for that shit gets totally fucked. So I was... <laughs> Very excited. I just remember the one that's line. That's a very good way it. to put it. It's Chinatown. Yeah. Which is, that's... <laughs> you know, not earned when you just say it, but yeah, like it very, is, very yeah, good at the way, end of the movie. By the way, the movie earns it way too, like it, it yeah. over earns it and you're just sitting there like, oh, I hate Chinatown. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's just like, man, fuck Chinatown. Yeah, like that's exactly what you want to say at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm like, dude. yeah. So, so what, what, not... what happens? I've never seen it. Uh... Dude, I'm not gonna tell you. I can't. Don't I couldn't, spoil, I couldn't don't possibly spoil. do that to you. Go over uh, like the. You know, I'm gonna. The I got. Opening, it, I got it, you I got know it. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's fucking Jack Nicholson. He's a private eye for the beat. Most of the beginning, he's wearing like a beautiful white suit and fedora. Looks, he looks like such a shitbird, and I love it. Yeah, he has this effortless power to be so annoying to people that he gets them <laughs> to do what he wants. There's like one scene where he's sitting in an office and she won't let him see the guy. So she just sits there waiting for him to be done with whatever he's yeah. doing. And it's just so incredibly annoying. And it yes. is so funny. Um, but yeah, it's it's it was made in the 70s, but it's still got it's like specifically set in like the old noir times. Exactly. Um, it is Jorge, the first I don't want you to... neo-noir. Awesome. Uh, Jorge, I don't want you to think that you'd miss anything by knowing the plot of Double Indemnity. Like I read the plot of this movie ahead of time. Um, just because I was looking for which one of these I wanted to watch, there's so much about the substance of Double yeah. Identity that you, I think you'll yeah. still really like. No, this for one. sure, for sure. It's this one is just different because it's I was gotcha, say, gotcha. Yeah, Chinatown like, is, is actually one where you do not want to know the like you you can know the beginning, but you do not want to know anything after the halfway mark. You really don't want to know anything. Yeah. They do a really good job of like slowly unfolding the mystery, and it all is like actually making sense, and like you're seeing clues that they're not telling you mm-hmm. are resulting in things yet but you can totally figure it out ahead of time unlike most fucking things ever and uh you have this whole sensation of like that dread is building up (laughs) like with the music and everything they do is very very good yeah so i would definitely watch it even in incidental scenes that they're like nothing like that the characters are kind of okay with Mm -hmm. um the one scene i was going to bring up is when they're on the boat together and he's snapping photos of the guy like ready is like 10 minutes in but like the music is Very kind funny. of ominous and threatening, and you're like, they're just dicking around, you know, yeah. trying to catch a guy cheating. Why is this so like scary, you know, bad music? And it's like, I you end up understanding why, but like, 
Yeah. It's really bizarre. It's, it, they always have that anxiety in there. Um, yeah. Also pretty sure I want to watch every Jack Nicholson movie. So I done. wanted to talk about him because yeah. I was watching this movie. I, watch, I was watching the beginnings of it because I wanted to reacquaint myself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, Jack Nicholson's such a bad motherfucker. He's just so good. He, and he's young because it's, what, 79? Is some, like, 70-something movie. Mid-70s. Mid-70s. Yeah. Probably, like, 75, 76. And he's, you know, this young, slim, whatever. And I, ha- I thought about it, and I have three actors in mind with this, including Nicholson. Certain just awesome actors at some, literally a point in time, ascend or descend into memehood and they become another like iteration of themselves. Like if you look okay. physically at Jack Nicholson, uh-huh. you see like Chinatown, like young Jack Nicholson and he, and he has like his face and he's all slim and he's kind of cocky and whatever. Mm. And then you have like, you know, even I'll say even 10 years ago, like anger management or like the departed Jack Nicholson, who's yeah. definitely bigger, but he's just more insane and crazy and out there. The yeah. same thing happened with Pacino and De Niro, where in the 70s and the 80s, they're like young, almost heartthrob. Like they have a little sexiness to them. They have this sly whatever. Yeah, and you're saying like, like they become a parody of themselves almost. Yeah, they explode. They're like an extreme version of themselves. Yeah, like somehow all of the cocaine caught up to Al Pacino and then became <laughs> his bloodstream. And he's just like, sure. ooh and just all nuts and stuff. De Niro is just like, perpetually. And you're like, what happened to all these people? Mm-hmm. I want to, for at least these three, at some point, just look and go like, that's the exact moment he became exactly a joke. When they instead of like- <laughs> over. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Nicholson probably goes back and forth, honestly. Probably keeps tiptoeing yeah. over that line until he finally gets stuck that way. <laughs> he rides it for about 10 or so years. Yeah, For it's... me, that exact point for Nicholson is the one line in The Shining when well, he goes, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to beat your fucking brains out. <laughs> like, that's the moment. Like, okay, we are, we are in Jack oh, Nicholson oh, yeah. 2.0. No, I, I was going to mention that, actually, because Nicholson specifically did not want to play the character that way in The Shining. And the director fucking made him. Oh, oh really? you're telling me Stanley Kubrick was a little heavy-handed in Are his you fucking t- directing? Yeah. You're well, telling me that yeah, Stanley Kubrick had a very specific vision of what he fucking wanted and everyone going to suffer for like, it? Yeah. Nicholson was like, dude, this is too extreme. People yeah, don't like, act this way. Like, I don't think people are going to like it. And Kubrick's like, you're fucking doing it, dude. It's in the movie now. So, yeah. that, hey, one, you know that what? one big complaint everybody has about The Shining, not his fault. Just wanted so, to like... For everyone listening, if you if you don't know who Stanley Kubrick is, uh, look him up. And, but he's like famously one of the most like vile directors to work for, and like would break mm-hmm. actors. Like, all right, this is take two hundred and one of the same four second yes. sequence. We're gonna do this until it's right. Again, not you can see the behind the scenes on Eyes Wide Shut specifically of this case. He made Tom Cruise and the other I forget the other actor's name Nicole Kidman. No, no, no. This is the, it's another actor in it. It wasn't Nicole Kidman. Oh, this okay, scene. okay. But it's because it's literally a arbitrary scene of like rolling a pool ball and sitting down. He made them do it like a hundred plus times. Yeah. It was a it was one static shot in the film that doesn't like anything. But he was such a perfectionist that he was like, "You do this until it's right." He was a madman. Yeah, makes the best fucking But he knew how to direct. Movie, yeah, he lit. Uh, fun fact about Kubrick: he made a lens that was he made a lens 
for cameras that was so good that you could film in just direct candlelight. You didn't have to like substitute light it. And then he refused to let anybody else use it because he's oh like, God. it's my lens. <laughs> Fuck all that of you. Fucking <laughs> asshole. I'm like, but, yes. Uh, getting back to Chinatown, you mentioned yes. that it was a neo noir. Yes. Like, what makes it that? Because as far as I could tell, and like from what I had been reading about it afterwards and such, is like it very specifically is not parodying noir. Correct. It's not like trying to do anything like more sensibly or updated for the times. It is just like another dope noir film. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, it's a little bit of a technical term in the sense of the time frame. Like it is the new noir. Yeah, it's that just are like in the out. newer era. Um, it is the beginning of the new era of noir. Um, so there's that. Uh, also, the idea of having it in color is something new with it because mm. most, even when color was out, I mean, Wizard of Oz came out in 1939. Every That's why her most shoes are red. Yeah, most noirs are black and white on purpose. Like, they are right. meant to be black and white. So having one in color is a little bit shocking uh, in the sense of it is an update to the thing. Um, but you bring up a good point with it because it is kind of a faithful noir. What sort of things in it did you notice that were, like, tropes of noir? Or you felt that either should be... Or, like, guests that are tropes of uh, noir. Yeah, I mean, literally the whole thing. But, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's a private eye. It's like a single uh, femme fatale comes literally into his the office. There's, like, consistently, like, she's good. No, she's lying. She's good. Um, he's got he's friends. Like, he used to be a cop. Mm-hmm. He's got, like, kind of friends with the police that he's not actually super good friends with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Everybody's drinking, everybody's smoking. Yes. It's like that whole mystery where it's all laid out and slowly unfolded. Mm-hmm. And he's like at the bottom of a much larger scheme being unfolded. Go yeah. all the way to the tippy top. It's like <laughs> politics. It's it's like the this is nonstop noir tropes. You're a hundred you're a hundred percent correct. Um and again, it's also a funny thing. I noticed this with the two movies you guys picked, and a couple other movies have this. The initial things or, like, the surrounding plot, like, what the plot is about, ends up being, like, almost hilariously mundane. Like, if you take out all the murder and sex, like, oh, Fred McMurray is making an insurance scam. And the big conflict in Chinatown is about water and power. Like, these are things that don't sound, like, sexy and cool. Like, it's, right. it's, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, the water and power secretary is an integral character in this film. And you're like, why do I give a <laughs> fuck about this meeting and of that the is... municipal... Ca- like- <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only thing I meant by, like, they wanted something to actually happen. Yeah. Because Chinatown was so good. And I was, like, very interested and invested the whole time. But it is certainly, yeah, it is like, oh, you're meeting the chief engineer for the water company. Like, <laughs> exactly. Like, you're taking some pictures I mean, that you're looking again, at. Oh, there's just some Double indemnity is just half of it takes place in an insurance mm-hmm. office talking about the, like, the nuances of this insurance claim. Yes. <laughs> and it's so fucking dramatic when they do it. Now, call me like a little baby millennial or whatever, but will, this anyway. is not a criticism of, of Chinatown. This is just in general movies back then. They just like when something's happening, they want me to watch the whole thing. Like for example, yeah. if you if he's going up and knocking on a door, you have to wait while the person inside like makes yeah. their way over to the door and opens it. And I'm There's like, no dude, quick I'm watching. Cut to the door opening. Like, it's just 
The movie was two hours, but literally, there's like probably an hour of content there, honestly. <laughs> when he's like, I don't need to oh watch you God. walk across this like whole field over to the thing and then yeah. like be sitting there thinking about it for a while before anything happens. Like, no, this, the same thing happens in Double Indemnity so many times. Like, the, when the actual murder happens, it's just, it's on a face and the murder happens off screen for like. <laughs> four full minutes <laughs> it's just, yeah oh my god <laughs> now there was some times where what i'm saying it seems like the same situation but it's not true because jack nicholson actually does a really good job of like you learn a lot about what he's thinking and doing just by like him stopping for a second or looking at somebody a particular way yes he's like his, very his acting is tremendous honestly all the acting in that in chinatown yeah. is fucking tremendous yeah and dunaway is incredible they also have very authentic fighting. I'll say, like very realistic. Yeah. Fighting. I mean, they do like the sound, the, the silly old timey sound effects and everything, but like <laughs> the way people fight, where they're just kind of like groping at each other and trying to yeah. not let go so they don't get whipped in the face. Exactly. It's like very, very accurate. I think. Like maybe somebody throws a punch, but even by then, it's just like, oh, I, I either got hit so I fall over, or like I you missed so I get to grab your shirt and we just kind of push each other yeah. for a while like he does the thing where he pulls somebody's jacket over their head and the whole fight oh, is clearly yeah. about like he could if he gets out of there it's going to be bad like he's got to keep the jacket over yeah. it's a few licks in that's mostly the fight though do so as much damage as possible yeah um, so what about you Brian what'd you watch for us so oh, I want to bring up one thing cuz I looked up um like I said, I watched the beginning of Chinatown, and then I ended up watching a film called Touch of Evil, which I will get into. That was um, I was I was between Chinatown and Touch of Evil. You, I would um, well get to Touch of Evil in a hot second because there's words to be said. Um, uh, but so God noir, you know, film noir is dark, and it uh, t- apparently attracts dark people. It started with Germans during the Depression, and even in neo noirs, so. A certain Roman Polanski is the guy who directed Chinatown, no. of course. Yeah. Oh, really? He, oh, yes. no. Yes. It's like, you know, exactly. Um, he almost but, did not, he at first did not want to direct it, by the way, because he did not want to return to California where Sharon Tate had just been murdered by Charles yes. Manson and his family. Yes. That Quote, makes, unquote. very. it's understandable. Um, but he was apparently a huge prick. Him and Jack Nicholson, again, Jack Nicholson, for some reason, I, I guess it's just directors are scared that he actually knows what he's fucking talking about. So they like get annoyed at him. Apparently <laughs> they're like, no, you do it the way we want. Mr. Guy who's smart and can act. <laughs> Mr. Man, Mr. Man, look at you, the f- top. I think build. you're forgetting that you're in my Exa- movie like, right kind now. Of. Um, Kubrick, I kind of attribute to just his insanity. So I'm like, Hey, we do that. To yeah. Anybody. You're not going to fucking argue. With but Kubrick. Polanski is a little more whatever. But apparently, I mean, he's also known for being like that. Exactly. That's what, like, yeah. So, but, um, fun fact, he is the, you know, the midget, he's not a midget, but the short guy he calls out the, well, he's the one with the knife, right? Yeah. He's the guy who cuts his nose. Yeah. Apparently. So there used to be the rumor that it was, that it was actually real, that he actually fucking cut him. Oh, no way. Exactly. They got bored. Polanski and Nicholson got bored during interviews and just started saying that. (laughs) But the actual, the actual story with it is, um, Polanski had rigged it the uh, special effect himself. He had made the mm-hmm. knife, right? And basically Nicholson knew if the edge of it was leaning one way, it would have been completely safe. Like it would do the mm-hmm. effect, no problem, and it's fine. 
But if it wasn't, if it was leaning the other way, it would. It was. It was actually a knife, and it would have fucked him up in uh-huh. some way. And Polanski and him were at such odds during filming. Yeah. That Polanski, before the take went off, would just no. flip the knife over and over again oh, until Nicholson oh couldn't tell which oh side it was. Oh my god. So when you see Nicholson that in there, fucking like fucking psychopath, Ugh. like yeah, like it, it ends. It so is the fate. He ends up fucking with him. But like, it's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> so Stop. good. You're adding so much more to your negatives column. I can't handle it. Yeah. I also um, read. So the uh, the script in general is like regarded as like one of the best scripts that's been written. And the uh, yeah, the original writer had a completely different ending in mind. And Polanski was like, no, we're doing this <sighs> one, which it ended up being. And everyone it's, was like, thank God you, you like saved. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> which is funny. I thought it's there's sometime. Yeah. Like. Yeah, let's That's, let's go yeah. let's go off on on uh, one of the things you watch, Brian. Um. Oh, so I just do, do another quick recap of it. So the big tropes I always get from Chinatown is the hard boiled detective, the former cop. Like they're always like at odds with the cop. Um. I'll also put in a little bit of incompetent police or bad police because Nicholson does a lot of the investigating there. Mm-hmm. The cops are around, but they don't exactly, you know, help move the plot along. I would, I mean, they have, Nicholson has evidence that they couldn't possibly have gotten. Exactly. And as like, soon as they get anywhere on the trail, they are very efficient at what they're doing. That's true. That's true. It just takes them a while to do it. Right. Um, And then again, the general negative mood and dreaded anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up watching a film in between these two. That was actually, it actually marked near the end of the original film noir period. This was 1958. This was Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Yes. Starring. Also in my intro film class. Yes. Um, this was starring Charlton Heston, Janet Lee, and Orson Good Welles. Charlton Heston. Uh, I will say the Charlton Heston one has a brief co-star, which is the brown paint that is on his face because he plays a Mexican. Oh, boy. No. He plays Miguel or Mike Vargas, who... Yep. <laughs> yep. He plays Chorizo Hudson. He, <laughs> Ka- yes, that's, you know, Chorizo Hudson is a freak. Or Heston, whatever. I like Chorizo Hudson for some reason. <laughs> yeah, Charlton Heston. Like, they couldn't even bother to get the last name right as well, so they're just like, yeah, fuck it, Hudson or some shit. Um... Oh my god! But yeah, well, it certainly is not the first time, and it is not the last in our sordid film no. history. Correct. Um, yeah, like I mean, uh, yeah, did you know Robert what? Downey Jr. like five years ago get nominated for an Oscar it for was Black eleven Face? years ago? But yes, you're right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking and, oh, more like and, Short Circuit, but yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So honestly, <laughs> I'm not that upset by Touch of Evil doing that. So yes. Um, and I mean it's. I'll say this. It is definitely bad, but at least he's not a stereotype. Like, I, there's at least something. I don't know. Um, but so Charlton Heston plays, or excuse me, Chorizo Hudson plays oh a, <laughs> he plays a, basically the equivalent of a DEA agent uh, for Mexico. And his wife is an American. And there is a bombing that happens right at the border, which by the way is hilarious because the border is just a guy at a little booth going, hey, are you an American citizen? And then Janet Lee goes, I am, and that's my husband. And he goes, 
oh, okay. Hey, you're Mike Vargas. You're the big hotshot, you know, cop, right? And he goes, yes, I am. And he goes, go on through, sir. I <laughs> just, feel like that's what it used to be exactly, like. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's just a how you do and a pat on the it ass really and welcome is. to the States. Um, yeah. But uh, Touch of Evil is famous for two things. The opening shot, which is included in that part, it is an unbroken, like, three-and-a-half-minute shot of just tension and suspense. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that it is known for is fat Orson Welles being oh, fat yeah. and Orson Welles. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he is... Do we just, like, slowly get a close-up of an Orson Welles voice there really is, quickly? By the way, by there's the nothing way. slow about the close-up on him. His first shot is a from below him getting out of the car and it's just and you're like, oh my god, you're in the whole frame. Holy shit. Um That's another thing with film noir though, right? Like uh, those really dramatic stagings, like someone's face is gonna be right up in that camera yes. or it's gonna be like a thousand miles away. This okay, so in terms of recommendations for people, like if you wanna get the kind of classic aesthetic and ideas of noir your primer would be, like, double indemnity. If you want to see, like, in my opinion, probably the apex of a noir story, you would want to watch Chinatown. This is, like, the aesthetics of film noir persona. Like, if you want to see what a film noir looks like, you watch Touch of Evil. Because oh, so you're saying that we picked yeah. literally the perfect three movies for this episode. Pretty, well, uh, pretty much. Well, he's saying that he picked the perfect three yeah. movies for this episode. Absolutely. Oh, no, I picked it from the list. That's uh, true. I get half <laughs> yeah, credit. That's true. Um, there were other movies. Yeah, there were other options. Um, the lighting, the way the camera is placed, the like what's in focus and what's not in focus, that plus the sound design on it is just fucking incredible. Like... Every time you're at this one house where Orson Welles used to go be a fucking drunk at, there's always this automatic piano playing the same song. So every time you hear the song in the movie, it, you just get the feelings you're supposed to get from those scenes. Mm. Um, another, per- There's another just great shot where towards the end where Orson Welles, big fat Orson Welles, I can't, I cannot stress it enough. Like, yeah, you if should look at some pictures because he's like, a big yeah. old man. If the man was shaped like the capital letter D. Basically, oh, I. <laughs> That's what he would have been on Sesame Street. He just would have been the letter D, but he would have like loomed in a corner <laughs> and like he'd be like, oh, it's, you know, duck. What does duck start with? And they would just slowly pan the camera over to him in the corner and he would just go, D. D. And everyone just goes, oh. <laughs> um, But there's a great shot of him when his character is like, feeling vulnerable and about to kind of fall right like he's about to be found out whatever he stands up and it matches him perfectly with a stuffed buffalo head with spears in it right in the background of the shot like just Mm, the cinematic language is fucking perfect Mm -hmm. um the opening though i want to just talk about the opening shot for a second because there's a famous story that alfred hitchcock tells talking about suspense versus shock, right? And he basically goes, imagine people sitting at a table, two or three people. Wait, wait, just... You got to do it like Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, I cannot do that. Imagine, imagine <laughs> the difference between shock <laughs> and oh, Come on. I'm absolutely not doing, I'm not That's flapping. Absolutely how Alfred Hitchcock I am Hitchcock not talks. flapping my ample jowls to try and sound 
like a fucking <laughs> really good film director. But he basically goes, imagine uh, people sitting at a table in a cafe. Uh, and the scene plays out. They're just talking. People get up, come back, blah, blah, blah. And then five minutes later, a bomb explodes. You've got five. You, 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 everyone explodes. So you got five seconds of like shock and surprise, right? And he's like, take the same fucking scene. But right before they sit down, show a bomb ticking under the table set to five minutes. Because then you have five minutes of just agony and tension going, when is this? Oh, my God, it's going to go off. It's going to go off. So when people get up to the, go to the bathroom, you're like, oh, they're safe. But then they come back and you're like, oh, shit. Touch of Evil's opening sequence is exactly this. The opening scene is a unknown assailant turns a bomb, turns the timer on a bomb. It starts ticking. He puts it mm-hmm. in the back of a car and then a couple gets in that car and then the scene, like basically an unbroken shot ensues of you see the car in the background. You oh, see the cool. car in the foreground. It bumps into the main characters. It drives far away from the main, it, like uh-huh. it's fucking excellent. It's so good. Couldn't recommend cool. it. Oh, yeah. That was definitely some of the feelings uh, watching the double indemnity there at times like, oh, my fucking God, uh, it's, it's all coming down around you. It's going to happen right now. And it's just something like, you know, they'll walk in and there'll be a man sitting in front of an office. And at first you're not really, oh, my fucking God, that's the guy who saw him on the train or like shit like that. Like they're just like these weird, like they don't make a big deal out of how dramatic this fucking moment is mm-hmm. about to become until it's, you know, all of a sudden my knuckles are white, my teeth are clenched and I just weirdly want a cigarette. <laughs> But you did have to take a nap halfway through. Oh, okay. Jorge, so, bring out yeah. Like, <laughs> no, sorry, I don't so, want to. I don't get to all of bit. these excitement feelings. Definitely came in the second half. I think uh, a double identity yeah. works in two halves rather than three acts. But um, it yeah yeah. I also I also half, had an I absolutely I did. I have a confession. I fell asleep and I had to take a little <laughs> intermission nap and then I watched the rest of it and got very excited. Um. So, <laughs> on the subject of film noir. Or are we friends? Anyone. I'm going to say uh, I did not realize how much I was going to enjoy seeing this kind of film. Like, I, I'd never really watched a film noir. I grew up with parodies and, like, watching Whose Line Is In Anyway when they go to do noir oh, stuff. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is a ridiculous set of tropes above, like, old-timey movies. And, like, no, 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 this was a real set of aesthetics, and they work really well on me. Like I was strangely aroused by Mrs. Diedrichson. There's nothing strange. Usually, like there is nothing strange about that arousal. Like oh no, I know, but it was strange. like I didn't expect a woman in victory curls and ankles to be incredibly <laughs> arousing in 2019 to me. But like, stop, damn, that stop, movie really did it stop. for me. I didn't expect a woman named Phyllis to arouse me ever. <laughs> yeah, Phyllis. Like, Phyllis, Phyllis Diedrichson. Damn y'all. It's such a 40s name. It's so old. <laughs> Dude, they could have called her anything, and I just would have been all about that. <laughs> yeah, so I actually already knew a fair amount about these movies because of taking film courses in college, mm-hmm. high school, maybe. I don't know, but uh, so <laughs> I was already like institutions a of little bit well versed in this, and yeah, I was already I was very excited to watch Chinatown. I've been meaning to watch it forever, and uh, lots of what Call of Cthulhu is, which is that nerdy role playing game that we all play, is based which in like, this, these kinds of tropes and. Um, this kind of stuff. It just also has like crazy aliens and monsters and stuff. So that's like, yeah. I fucking live there, dude. <laughs> I'm absolutely friends when it comes to this. Oh yeah, the 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 character that I play for Call of Cthulhu is absolutely gonna get a little more film noir-y 
I, I would hope he gets more anything. Anyways, I, I was, Brian. Dude, I <laughs> no, no. I hope he gets a little more anything is the correct answer to talk about Joe Montana. Oh. Which is my character's name in you, the role-playing game that mm. we play. Yeah, he does oh. nothing because Taylor likes to be on his phone the whole time. Yes, correct. <laughs> Uh, excuse me. The last time that we played this, I threw my phone on the bed and I was so like entirely into the details that I was literally going crazy with the amount that I was focused it's on. Really that yeah, no, it was really nice having you focus last time. I got to say, well, that it, felt, fine. That was I'll really just throw my phone away all the time. It was really great having you focus, except it was the climax where it was just action at that point with some decision making, like all the investigative, like learning of things, putting clues together. It would have been great to have somebody attentive then instead mm-hmm. of just implicitly shooting anybody who holds a gun. Well, obviously, that's because I hadn't seen Film Noir yet. So Correct. now, okay, having gosh. watched Film Noir, I'm great. totally in this. Well, we are actually Excellent. starting an actual investigative one this time. So, dude. But, Brian. Uh, yes. Um, I, I always get nervous bringing up these older things. And to be honest, when I was thinking about Film Noir earlier i kind of freaked myself out going like oh film noir used to be kind of far away now it is ancient like people who were who are a hundred years old saw these movies in their 20s saw the beginnings of film noir in their 20s like yeah it's uh yeah this movie that i watched came out uh, two years before my grandparents got married. Damn. Exactly. Like, you know, it's this ridiculous... Like, now, nowadays, it's so... It's fading away in the, the term, like, recent I, memory of people. I don't know about that. There's... Because I've watched a good number of films that are, like, neo-neo-noir. Yeah. I can, like... <laughs> I can show you some of them because they're fucking bananas and awesome. I, no, no, no. I, I'm I, not... That's kind of not what I mean to say. Like, literally in the physical memories of people, like... Nobody oh. remembers going to see these movies. Like, right. Yeah. There used it's to be becoming a time. an archaeological act Bingo. to watch these movies. Bingo. Um, so I am just like tickled pink out of my uh, film noir Venetian blind malaise of cynicism that you two enjoyed your film so much. I'm going to say with real, genuine 50s do gooder confidence that we are friends. Okay. Mugsy? Bugsy? <laughs> Someone get me an egg cream. <laughs> oh, the fucking... I love the, the Back to the Future line. Give me a milk. Chocolate. And it slides over to him immediately. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this dark and mysterious night as the slow embers of my cigarette, the last one I had, fade away. You can find us on the boob tube and on the world wide web at underscore are we friends all one word on twitter and instagram you can also find us on our website at r dash we dash friends dot com the fuck do you mean by or you can also find us wherever we're not on television (laughs) (laughs) i have been your co-host soaked in bourbon drinking from the bottle tie undone Cigarette burning my fingers, Taylor. I've been your co co host, Brian. I'm still just Jorge. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week, or will we? Bum, bum.